Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to Robert Boatwright, who is the editor of The Deregulatory Moment, a comparative perspective on changing campaign finance laws. The book is published by University of Michigan Press in 2015. Robert Boatwright is on the phone today with me. Rob, how are you doing? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, such a pleasure to have you on. Uh, to have read the book and, and these really interesting different perspectives, uh, sort of perspective that we often don't uh, used to look at campaign finance. It makes it a very interesting book. Before we get to the book, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Okay, I'm a professor of political science at uh, Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, and I, I also just became the research director at the National Institute for Civil Discourse, which is a organization uh, based out of the University of Arizona that tries to study uh, civility and politics. I study uh, campaign finance and primary elections mostly. Yeah, uh, how interesting! Uh, congratulations on the on the new post. I hadn't Thanks. hadn't heard that, and that sounds like great news. Um, let's talk about the book. Towards the very beginning of the book, in your introduction to the to the work, uh, you present a table with a typology of uh, campaign finance regulations. Would you tell us a little bit about this typology? And some of the examples that you include of, of policy options. Uh, sure. Well, the book, as the title suggests, is about deregulation, which is a term that has been tossed around quite a bit to uh, as sort of an explanation of what the Citizens United decision in the United States did. And I felt that before we talk about deregulation, we need to talk a little bit about what the various uh, campaign finance regulations in the United States are. So we can get a sense of what some different types of regulations are uh, in order to figure out what uh, scaling back on those would look like. So there's no there's no right or wrong way to come up with typologies, but I thought the one that made the most sense for the book, particularly because I was interested in comparing the United States to other countries, was to distinguish between uh, types of public financing, that is, uh, Subsidies per vote, matching funds, tax credits, other things like that. Contribution uh, limits for individuals, groups, political parties. And uh, disclosure requirements, that is, rules about uh, what the public should know about uh, campaign spending and what the time frame is for when they should know about them. So, again, there are other ways to divide things up, but I thought that was a good starting gambit. Now, as you just mentioned, this is uh, this typology is is uh, looking really at the U.S. system. Are these policy options similar in in different countries, and and is the motivation behind them the the same in different locations as in the United States? No, it really isn't, and that I think is one of the most the most striking things about uh, what I was trying to do here. Different nations uh, have different, I mean, as you mentioned, different motivations for why they might seek to regulate campaign spending. In a lot of countries, there's a much greater concern with uh, corruption than there is in the United States. We talk a lot about corruption and 
uh, many of our Supreme Court decisions set corruption out there as a permissible reason for restricting political spending. But at the same time, the United States does not have a particularly rich understanding of what political corruption is, whereas many other countries have uh, a lot more experience with uh, corruption laws, with legislation regarding this, and have done a lot more to pitch their campaign rules at uh, corruption. Um, in addition to that, of course, there are distinctions uh, between party systems, uh, whether uh, you have a parliamentary system or a presidential system like we have, uh, the extent of party discipline, all sorts of other things, all sorts of institutional features such as that uh, can dictate the appropriateness of different types of campaign spending regulations. Now, you, you argue and, and you just mentioned that deregulation uh, typically means removing one or, or maybe all of these different kinds of regulations. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about an illustrative example of a decision to deregulate campaign finance. You mentioned Citizens United. Is that the, the best case? If, if it is, maybe you can just tell us kind of a little bit more about that. Well, I struggled a little bit with defining what political deregulation is in large part because it's not a term that was used to talk about politics up until a few years ago. So there's a long history of research on uh, deregulation uh, in the economic sector. And for the most part, when people talk about that, when they talk in the United States, for instance, about the uh, deregulation of the airline industry, uh, uh, telephones, trucking, all sorts of other uh, things of that nature, they're generally talking in a broad sense about reducing the role of government in structuring the marketplace and setting caps on what you can charge or floors on what you can charge, things of that nature. So in one sense, it is not difficult to say, well, you could apply that to politics. If government is telling you you can only accept a certain amount of money or you can only accept money from particular sources. If you get rid of that, in some sense, yeah, you're talking about deregulating, right? You're talking about getting the government out of the business of telling people exactly how to raise and spend their money. But at the same time, I think that uh, when we go and look for concrete examples of regulation or deregulation in politics, uh, for the most part, we're not talking about restricting the role of government and telling people what to do. We're picking winners and losers. So in the case of Citizens United, for instance, uh, doing away with restrictions on what groups can say in elections, doing away with restrictions on how much they can spend. It looks like an instance of deregulation, but it's also uh, it also entails shifting the balance of spending. So the parties may be advantaged, groups may be advantaged, individuals may be advantaged. So it's not deregulation in the same sense that economic deregulation might be. Now, you wrote, in addition to editing the book, you wrote the third chapter of the book that's focused on the U.S. Um, how has deregulation changed campaign finance in the country over the last, let's say, decade or so? What What has been some of the measurable outcomes of this uh, change? Well, there's not really been any sort of equilibrium since the uh, the Roberts Court started, you know, passing, started various decisions that uh, chipped away at the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. We've seen a bunch of very different types of elections. The chapter I contributed to the book was an effort to understand uh, super PACs. So the super PAC have taken, I think, fairly different forms across the three elections since the Citizens United decision. 
In 2010, uh, the election that happened immediately after the Citizens United decision, the groups that were best able to exploit the, the new regime, the uh, lack of restrictions on interest group spending, were groups that already had an infrastructure that already knew how to raise money. Organizations like, say, the Chamber for Co- of Commerce or other ongoing organizations. What we saw in 2012, which is the, for the most part uh, what I describe in the chapter there, is a, a marketplace where there aren't really any dominant players. That is, we have a lot of groups that pop up in 2012, and many of them are what I, I've taken to referring to as boutique packs. That is, one person with an idea that they want to inject into politics. So we had groups that year, uh, for instance, we had one organization that was two wealthy guys from Texas who wanted to defeat incumbents in primaries, whether they were Democrats or Republicans. Uh, another organization that sought to put a lot of money behind moderate Republican candidates who were okay with same-sex marriage. Uh, so a lot of different organizations that reflected the idiosyncrasies of individual donors. At the same time, in 2012, we didn't really have any dominant players. Uh, in 2014, the which is, again, after the chapter that I wrote here, uh, super PACs began to consolidate a little bit. We saw more of an effort by the parties and the party organizations to create very, very large super PACs that would effectively behave like parties. So what we've seen over the past few elections, then, is a series of shifts in what super PACs are capable of doing, but in all of those instances, I think what unites super PAC spending is it's very ephemeral. You can form a group, and then you can disband the group a little while later, which gives people who simply want to make a splash, who want to be active in an individual campaign, the opportunity to do so without necessarily facing the consequences. Now, the book goes on with, with chapters focused on different countries, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe in general. Who have you brought together to, to help you with this uh, edited volume? Maybe you can just mention some of the other people and, and how you brought the group together. Uh, sure. Um, uh, the book came about uh, as part of a conference that I convened in Luxembourg in uh, 2013. And as I think is evident from the questions you've asked so far, the basic uh, idea here is that deregulation, although it gets talked a lot about in American politics with reference to uh, campaign finance in the U.S., it's not necessarily a concept that Americans have a monopoly on, and it's not necessarily a concept that we should expect to only work uh, within the United States. Again, if you use the economic comparison, there are many people in the, United, in the 1980s who talked about deregulation in uh, the U.S. economy and said, well, look, this is the way that Western nations are going. The UK is doing this. Other countries are doing this as well. This is the wave of the future. So my idea in the book was to say, well, if that is the logic, then perhaps we might see a rhetoric of deregulation in the politics of other countries with reference to their campaign finance laws. When I put the uh, the book together, when I organized the conference, I sought to bring people who had expertise in countries that were different from the U.S. in relatively significant ways, but might be expected to have political elites who are familiar with U.S. politics. Uh, so to give one example, Canada and Germany, a couple of countries that figure prominently here, are nations that enacted campaign finance regulations back in the 60s and 70s uh, 
Yeah, about at about roughly the same time that the United States uh, changed its campaign finance laws. And these are countries that have enacted laws at one time or another that roughly parallel the sorts of things that the U.S. was doing. So the people who contributed to the book all then were from countries that might be expected to have some sort of a rhetoric of deregulation if the idea is, in fact, uh, contagious. Uh, but what I found, and I think the book does a good job of showing how, you know, an idea can change when you get lots of other people together. Uh, what I found, the more I talked to the folks involved in the book, is that um, – not only are other countries not uh, deregulating, uh, but in many instances, uh, other Western countries are actually tightening uh, their campaign finance laws or heading towards more regulation rather than less. And in addition, in many of these countries, there is a lot more suspicion of the language that politicians use. That is, if you look at uh, Canada and the UK, for instance, I think most of the people who study campaign finance laws in those countries will say, yeah, politicians will use the laws to their advantage, the so-called cartel theory. And in those countries, there's a much, uh, I, I guess, theoretically richer understanding of the relationship between partisan advantage and uh, campaign finance laws than I think we have here. Uh, so just briefly, the book is organized so that it runs from more deregulation to less, or less regulation uh, to more. Uh, so I look at the United States at the beginning, lay out the case, uh, along with uh, my colleague Diana Dwyer, that uh, there is a trend towards deregulation in the United States. We look at a couple of uh, rather ambiguous cases, uh, Canada, the UK, and Australia, where politicians have done things that look to an American like deregulation, but have generally done them to advantage themselves, not out of any grand philosophical ambitions. And then the book, uh, we uh, take a look at uh, Germany, France, Sweden, and then uh, Ingrid van Biesen, a Dutch political scientist, uh, and Daniela Piccio, give an overview of what's gone on in all of the EU countries. And for the most part in those countries, it seems that not only have countries moved towards greater regulation of politics, but in many countries, the move towards greater regulation isn't really even about partisanship. It's more about norms of inclusion. So a lot of European countries have spent a lot of time debating about whether, for instance, they might wish to provide political subsidies even to tiny parties that get one or two percent of the vote just for the sake of some broader goal of inclusion rather than helping the people on top. So that's kind of the, the layout of where we go in the book. And, and as you mentioned, um, the, the Britain case kind of falls in the middle and, and seems to sort of do to some things in both direction. We're recording this podcast just days after the Brexit vote. And I hate to just spring a, a question on you like this, but I wonder if there are any links between this surprising vote and campaign finance in, in Britain. Is there, are there any of the conclusions um, that you drew from the, the article that was included in the volume, uh, and, and what's, what's happening to politics uh, in that country? Well, yeah, it's, it's hard not to think about the Brexit vote uh, in this context. 
I don't know that the campaign finance laws of the UK really had much uh, to do with it, but I will note uh, the concluding chapter of the book uh, is written by uh, Justin Fisher, a British political scientist. Uh, Fisher suggests that the UK is perhaps more vulnerable to some of the uh, deregulatory forces that the US has seen than our other European nations. Uh, he mentions, for instance, that um, the UK has always has had a lot of difficulty in regulating political spending because there are a lot of wealthy uh, British citizens who live in these tax havens. Uh, you know, they're not technically uh, part of the uh, part of the UK, but are able to spend large amounts of money in British elections. So Fisher's belief, uh, which you know, I, he could probably articulate this better than I can is that the UK is being affected by some of the same forces that the US has. That is one of the critiques in the US of super PAC spending. Again, is do you get idiosyncratic billionaires who don't have a stake in the party system, who don't have any real reason to act politically and then take responsibility for it five years down the road, ten years down the road? And he was worried about destabilization of the British system because of that in the same way that many Americans get worried about unaccountable political spending. So when you look at something like the Brexit vote, where it's clear that neither party was able to effectively endorse discipline either among their members or among the broader, uh, the broader public, the people who vote for those parties, it's kind of the same thing that you might see in the, uh, in the case of Donald Trump or in the case of the repeated problems on the Republican Party and to a lesser extent in the Democratic Party and uh, getting everybody basically on the same page. Yeah, really interesting. The, again, the title of the book is The Deregulatory Moment, A Comparative Perspective on Changing Campaign Finance Laws. Uh, the book is published by University of Michigan Press in 2015. Robert Boatwright, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thanks very much for having me.